Chapter Ten, Section One of Capital, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Capital, a critical analysis of capitalist production, Volume One, by Karl Marx. Translated from the third German edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Averling, and edited by Frederick Engels. Part three The Production of Absolute Surplus Value. Chapter ten The Working Day. Section one The Limits of the Working Day. We started with the supposition that labor power is bought and sold at its value. Its value, like that of all other commodities, is determined by the working time necessary to its production. If the production of the average daily means of subsistence of the laborer takes up six hours, he must work on the average six hours every day, to produce his daily labor power, or to reproduce the value received as the result of its sale. The necessary part of his working day amounts to six hours, and is, therefore, caeteris paribus, a given quantity, but with this the extent of the working day itself is not yet given. Let us assume that the line AB represents the length of the necessary working time, say six hours. If the labor be prolonged one, three, or six hours beyond AB, we have three other lines, representing three different working days of seven, nine, and twelve hours. Working day one, A. B C Working Day two A B C Working Day three A B C The extension B C of the line A B represents the length of the surplus labor. As the working day is A B plus B C or A C, it varies with the variable quantity B C. Since AB is constant, the ratio of BC to AB can always be calculated. In working day 1, it is 1 over 6. In working day 2, 3 over 6. In working day 3, 6 over 6 of AB. Since further, the ratio surplus working time over necessary working time determines the rate of the surplus value, the latter is given by the ratio of BC to AB. It amounts in the three different working days respectively to 16 two-thirds, 50, and 100 percent. On the other hand, the rate of surplus value alone would not give us the extent of the working day. If this rate, e.g., were 100 percent, the working day might be of 8, 10, 12, or more hours. It would indicate that the two constituent parts of the working day, necessary labor and surplus labor time, were equal in extent, but not how long each of these two constituent parts was. The working day is thus not a constant, but a variable quantity. One of its parts, certainly, is determined by the working time required for the reproduction of the labor power of the laborer himself, but its total amount varies with the duration of the surplus labor. The working day is, therefore, determinable, but is, per se, indeterminate. Footnote. A day's labor is vague, it may be long or short. An essay on trade and commerce, 
containing observations on Texas, etc. London, 1770, page 73. End of footnote. Although the working day is not a fixed but a fluent quantity, it can, on the other hand, only vary within certain limits. The minimum limit is, however, not determinable, of course, if we make the extension line BC or the surplus labor is zero, we have a minimum limit, i.e., the part of the day which the laborer must necessarily work for his own maintenance. On the basis of capitalist production, however, this necessary labor can form a part only of the working day. The working day itself can never be reduced to this minimum. On the other hand, the working day has a maximum limit. It cannot be prolonged beyond a certain point. This maximum limit is conditioned by two things. First, by the physical bounds of labor power. Within the twenty-four hours of the natural day, a man can expend only a definite quantity of his vital force. A horse, in like manner, can only work from day to day eight hours. During part of the day this force must rest, sleep. During another part the man has to satisfy other physical needs, to feed, wash, and clothe himself. Besides these purely physical limitations, the extension of the working day encounters moral ones. The laborer needs time for satisfying his intellectual and social wants, the extent and number of which are conditioned by the general state of social advancement. The variation of the working day fluctuates, therefore, within physical and social bounds. But both these limiting conditions are of a very elastic nature, and allow the greatest latitude. So we find working days of eight, ten, twelve, fourteen, sixteen, eighteen hours, i.e., of the most different lengths. The capitalist has bought the labor power at its day rate. To him its use value belongs during one working day. He has thus acquired the right to make the laborer work for him during one day. But what is a working day? Footnote. This question is far more important than the celebrated question of Sir Robert Peel to the Birmingham Chamber of Commerce. What is a pound? A question that could only have been proposed because Peel was as much in the dark as to the nature of money as the little shilling man of Birmingham. End of footnote. At all events, less than a natural day. By how much? The capitalist has his own views of this ultima tua, the necessary limit of the working day. As capitalist, he is only capital personified. His soul is the soul of capital. But capital has one single life impulse, the tendency to create value and surplus value, to make its constant factor, the means of production, absorb the greatest possible amount of surplus labor. Footnote. It is the aim of the capitalist to obtain with his expanded capital the greatest possible quantity of labor. D'obtenir du capital dépense la plus forte somme de travail possible. J. G. Courcel Senul. Traité théorique et pratique des entreprises industrielles. Second edition, Paris, 1857, page 63. And a footnote. Capital is dead labor that, vampire-like, only lives by sucking living labor, and lives the more, the more labor it sucks. The time during which the laborer works is the time during which the capitalist consumes the labor power he has purchased of him. Footnote. An hour's labor lost, in a day, is a prodigious injury to a commercial state. There is a very great consumption of luxuries among the laboring poor of this kingdom. 
particularly among the manufacturing populace, by which they also consume their time, the most fatal of consumptions. An Essay on Trade and Commerce, etc., page 47 and 153. End of footnote. If the laborer consumes his disposable time for himself, he robs the capitalist. Footnote. Si le manouvrier libre prend un instant de repos, l'économie sordide qui le suit des jeux avec inquiétude prétend qu'il la vole. En lingue, théorie des lois civiles, etc. London, 1767, T2, page 466. footnote. The capitalist, then, takes his stand on the law of the exchange of commodities. He, like all other buyers, seeks to get the greatest possible benefit out of the use-value of his commodity. Suddenly the voice of the laborer, which had been stifled in the storm and stress of the process of production, rises. The commodity that I have sold to you differs from the crowd of other commodities in that its use creates value, and a value greater than its own. That is why you bought it. That which on your side appears a spontaneous expansion of capital is on mine extra expenditure of labor-power. You and I know on the market only one law, that of the exchange of commodities. And the consumption of the commodity belongs not to the seller who parts with it, but to the buyer who acquires it. To you, therefore, belongs the use of my daily labor-power. But by means of the price that you pay for it each day, I must be able to reproduce it daily, and to sell it again. Apart from natural exhaustion through age, etc., I must be able on the morrow to work with the same normal amount of force, health, and freshness as today. You preach to me constantly the gospel of saving and abstinence. Good. I will, like a sensible saving owner, husband my sole wealth, labor-power, and abstain from all foolish waste of it. I will each day spend, set in motion, put into action only as much of it as is compatible with its normal duration and healthy development. By an unlimited extension of the working day, you may in one day use up a quantity of labor-power greater than I can restore in three. What you gain in labor, I lose in substance. The use of my labor-power and the spoliation of it are quite different things. If the average time that, doing a reasonable amount of work, an average laborer can live is thirty years, the value of my labor-power, which you pay me from day to day, is one divided by 365 times 30, or one divided by 10,950 of its total value. But if you consume it in ten years, you pay me daily one divided by 10,950 instead of one divided by 3,650 of its total value, i.e. only one-third of its daily value, and you rob me, therefore, every day of two-thirds of the value of my commodity. You pay me for one day's labor-power, whilst you use that of three days. That is against our contract and the law of exchanges. I demand, therefore, a working day of normal length, and I demand it without any appeal to your heart, for in money matters sentiment is out of place. You may be a model citizen, perhaps a member of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, and in the odor of sanctity to boot, but the thing that you represent, face to face with me, has no heart in its breast. That which seems to throb there is my own heart beating. I demand the normal working day because I, like every other seller, 
demand the value of my commodity. Footnote. During the great strike of the London builders, 1860-1861, for the reduction of the working day to nine hours, their committee published a manifesto that contained, to some extent, the plea of our worker. The manifesto alludes, not without irony, to the fact that the greatest profit-monger amongst the building-masters, a certain Sir M. Pito, was in the odour of sanctity. This same Pito, after 1867, came to an end a la Strusberg. End of footnote. We see, then, that, apart from extremely elastic bounds, the nature of the exchange of commodities itself imposes no limit to the working day, no limit to surplus labour. The capitalist maintains his rights as a purchaser when he tries to make the working day as long as possible, and to make, whenever possible, two working days out of one. On the other hand, the peculiar nature of the commodity sold implies a limit to its consumption by the purchaser, and the laborer maintains his right as seller when he wishes to reduce the working day to one of definite normal duration. There is here, therefore, an antinomy, right against right both equally bearing the seal of the law of exchanges. Between equal rights, force decides. Hence is it that in the history of capitalist production, the determination of what is a working day presents itself as the result of a struggle, a struggle between collective capital, i.e. the class of capitalists, and collective labor, i.e. the working class. End of Part 3, Chapter 10, Section 1